It's Jim Paff, and welcome back to the Against Nice podcast, where we believe that nice people are the cruelest of all people because they're subjective and selfish in the way that they address society. Kind people have the interests of others in mind, but they speak truth into society. Follow us on iTunes, give us a five-star rating, and also uh, give us your review of the podcast. You can also follow us on Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and many other podcasting apps. Now let's get to the show. Very excited about this podcast today. I'm going to have my friend uh, Leland Conway on. This is a really fun interview, Uh, just a lot of hard-hitting information, and uh, just a lot of fun-loving good times as well. Uh, Leland, I got to know when I was uh, Chief of Staff for Congressman Thomas Massey from Kentucky. He was on WLAP in uh, Lexington, Kentucky, and he was on WHAS in Louisville. Thomas would be on there regular. We found out we had both been on the radio and just uh, got to be good friends uh, with uh, Thomas being on with him so regularly. Uh, he's at the disruptionzone.com. That's his podcast. We'll probably trade off podcasts here as time goes on. We talk about that uh, in, in the interview. But uh, you can also find him at lelandconway.com. Um, Leland has an excellent liberty constitutionalist voice that I think is really intriguing and fun. And I just strongly urge you to listen to what he does. Uh, You're going to get a good sense of the way he thinks through things. We talk a little bit about our experience on the radio and, and, and really hitting on some of the issues that are taking place right now and where we need to go. Plus, and you'll be really excited to hear this and it'll be fun. He's, he's got uh, some basic things that are his agenda if he were to run for president this year. So without further ado, here's my interview with Leland Conway of the Disruption Zone podcast. Okay. Hey, uh, <laughs> really excited to uh, have my friend Leland Conway on here. Um, Good to see you, man. Yeah, you too, man. Awesome. Like, so my background with you first, and then I want to get your background. Sure. So I've worked, spent eight years at Capitol Hills. Anyone that listens to the podcast knows. And uh, two of those years, I got to work with Thomas Massey from Kentucky. And uh, you were at the time on radio in Lexington and Louisville, Kentucky. Yep. So you're a fantastic libertarian <laughs> like I am, constitutionalist, however you want to put it. I like those words. I do too. Yeah. <laughs> They're all good. Yep. I wish we had a lot more of them. Yeah, right. And, and or a lot more people saying it. And adhering to it. But uh, so anyway, you would be, Thomas would be on your show yep. quite a bit. You had a great following in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Uh, moving on to a podcast now, and I'm sure you'll be doing a lot of cool things. And hopefully we'll be doing some of that together in the future. Yeah, absolutely. But, but that's how I got to know you. And I introduced myself as a former radio guy. I spent four <laughs> years in Denver. So we're kind of radio guys. I yeah. mean, that's, that's yeah. what we do, I, yeah. which, which I love. I mean, I, I love radio. I love this podcast thing. Yeah. But um had a lot of interesting things going on in Kentucky at the time. So, you know, Thomas, I think weekly was on your radio shows. Almost. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of yeah. rarely not, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so anyway, that's how we got to know one another. Uh, tell everybody a little bit about yourself. I know you do have a podcast now. Sure. So tell what you have done and uh, what's going on with you now. Well, um, gosh, I started out in radio a long time ago, yeah. um, right in college. Um, it was funny because I was in, uh, I went to Asbury university in Wilmore. Yeah. And one of the things I learned as a freshman right away, I've never been a patient person. And one of the things I learned as a freshman right away was, um, 
you know, I, I was told get in there and do all the class projects. That's how you learn. Right. Yeah, so I yeah. get in and I'm like, all these seniors are bossing us around. And I'm like, these guys don't know squat about the business. This isn't the business. So I was like, screw it. I'm not doing class projects. So I went knocking on every radio station's door in Lexington that I could and said, give me a broom. I'll sweep the floor. Just let me be in here. And one let me. That's and, awesome. uh, so that's how I started in radio and um, kind of just caught the bug. And I loved it ever since. I've done a little bit of TV, uh, done some commentary for Fox News, yeah. um, done some uh, audio and production for television and stuff like that. But really, I started out in the newsroom. Yeah. And um, so I guess you could say a little bit of a journalist at heart and I'm, my heart breaks right now for the fact that journalism oh, is completely dead in America. It's crazy. Um, I spent several years doing play by play for uh, Eastern Kentucky university, Georgetown college, uh, and then ended up hosting the pre and post game show for UK. Yeah. And uh, that led to my first talk show. Yeah. And once I got into that, I was like, whoa, this expressing your opinion thing kind of fits. <laughs> so, so I did that for like 15 years, just doing just straight up talk show. And now, um, you know, I've got, I'll, I'll be announcing some things in the very near future. Uh -huh. I wish I could tell you today, but it's not quite ready yet yeah. about some of my next moves. But I can tell you that I'm still going to be involved in radio. Um, and at least on a part-time basis, mm -hmm. but I'm chasing some dreams right now, man. And I'm absolutely loving every bit of it. I, you know, it's what, what you and I have done. You've done a lot more of it, by the way. I'm, I think you're a, a bit more experienced than I am. Um, by the way, you've got the standard radio voice. Okay. You really do have that. <laughs> Do I? Uh, I think we both do. I mean, I don't, I, I don't know what you mean by standard radio voice. Like, what is that? Like, I think you and I walk into a room. Yeah. And if there's anybody in that room, they're going to know instantly that you or I have walked in the room. Right. And so I don't know if there's like a standard sound so much as there is a, it's, it's a combination of voice and personality. Yeah. Right. And yeah. it's, it's not that we necessarily want to kick everybody else out of the room. It's just that when we walk in, people tend to know we're there for whatever reason. And, and so I think we, that's what, that's what we have. And when we're in the yeah. middle of talking, you know, we're like, we, it, everyone seems to gravitate. They yeah. stop their conversations and then right. come over and get to this one. And right. Cause we're so loud. Yeah, I know, <laughs> man. Like, well, I'll just pay attention to the one I can hear. <laughs> That's right. I always have to adjust the volume on yeah. the end product <laughs> Yeah, or, or equalize kick. it. My family would always be like, do your radio voice. And I'm like, uh, right now, yeah. Oh, any, any conversation <laughs> I have. It's so true, man. Yeah. It's yeah. funny, so. but you know, you, you get into this and, and I, the way I got into all this, it's really interesting. Two two major things happened in my life that, that got me passionate about radio, other than getting into politics. Right. So I was in college at Indiana University, and there was this, and I was, I, I started- i forgive you for being a Hoosier, by the way. Thank you. Saying. Well, you know, we play better <laughs> basketball than you Kentuckians. No! <laughs> by the way, I would love- to, Here comes the bra. <laughs> I would love to do the Kentucky jokes. I have a, I have a, you know, they're <laughs> off track here and sure. I'll get back to my thing. I, I, this, this is my, uh, the way I look at college basketball and right. I love college basketball. Sure. I mean, people in Kentucky, I, I still Kentucky, mean, Indiana, North Carolina, it's all there is. That, that's right. Yeah. So, so, and, and, you know, they're, 
I mean, I think it's fair to say Indiana kind of is the world home of basketball, but Kentucky and North Carolina are close seconds. In my mind, you may right. disagree, but I'm just – Oh, close. we're going to claim it. But that's the beauty of it, right? Yeah. I mean, like those three states are all going to tell each other they're the home of it, and that's what makes being those three states as opposed to anybody else's a poser. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So this is my theory on college basketball, the history of college basketball. Since the 1940s, when the NCAA tournament became the dominant tournament. Yeah. tournament. It was the NIT before that. But the NCAA put together a tournament. There are only four teams that are the heart right. of college basketball. Yeah. It's Indiana, Kentucky, North Carolina, and Kansas, yeah. period. Yeah. Because every one of those teams, they've had their down decades. But every decade since the 1940s, those are the four teams you always right. look to. Right. It's yeah. been my theory for a long time. Yeah, and there'll be some people that'll try to interject Duke in there, but Duke doesn't win championships. Well, they they go to the tournament every year, but that's not the same. And they're they're always like in the top five, and then they fizzle every year. They yeah. exit early. Of course, Kansas has that problem too right now. But they they but yeah. do, well, but we all have in yeah. various decades. From time the to thing time, is, yeah. Duke's only done that within the last three decades. Right. Exactly. And uh, not because, all the way back to the forties. That's exactly yeah, right. That's a great so point. Yeah. and and they they are today the San Francisco of the 1950s. Yeah. San Francisco had that too. You know, Wilt Chamberlain played, I think it was Wilt Chamberlain played at San Francisco and they won some championships in the fifties. So right. no, these four teams are always in the game somewhere. Yep. I mean, they're making the tournaments. They're rarely not making the tournaments. Right. And, uh, and they don't always do great in the tournaments, but they've all won championships yep. through that time. UCLA is another one that people say, yeah. Oh, you got to put UCLA. No, <laughs> John Wooden era. Yeah. And then a, a and brief then, time no, think, in the 90s, yeah, and that's really that's about it. Yeah, it, that's, so. not, that's not enough to, to call it a dynasty. Right. It was a dynasty period versus, like you said, always Kentucky, Kansas, North Carolina, Indiana, always in the mix. And when they're not in the mix, something's wrong right. in college basketball. When Indiana wasn't doing so well a few years back, right. it was like you know they're going through fits and starts trying to find a great coach because something's wrong in the world of basketball when it's not. When it they're it not drives anymore. everybody nuts. Yeah. If the four of these teams don't show up in the tournament, yeah. people are like, what's going on yeah. here? That's really weird. <laughs> yeah, it, no, seriously. So even though yeah. even though I'll take uh, Kentucky has more championships than right, IU, right, sure. but I'll, I'll take IU over Kentucky anytime. You have to respect uh, Kentucky basketball. I was in North Carolina with some uh, with my uncle one time. Uh, got on the golf tournament on the golf course and I had some IU socks on oh no and this guy comes up to me and says hey uh what are you doing there <laughs> and I had to say hey I love Dean Smith I just gotta tell you I have great respect for Dean Diplomatic. Smith yeah you gotta be so Went in Rome so anyway uh you know it's, it's that, that I love basketball yeah I hate yeah. NBA basketball but oh, I yeah, love too. college basketball and yeah we might be able to get into that a little bit but so so back to how I got into radio I, um, in college, I went to Indiana and Bloomington and then I was, I finished at IUPUI in Indianapolis. When I was in Indianapolis, I found out about this thing called Siri radio reading, central Indiana radio reading. Okay. And they just, back then, you know, no internet, you know, yeah. hard to get audio of anything, definitely of newspapers. So I would read the newspapers and books, uh, record that. And then they would play it out on this special broadcast channel Okay. So to blind folks. Blind folks. Yeah. 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 So, uh, it got my diction got right. it really work. I got to work on my diction and I don't, I'm not perfect at it uh, even on the radio right now, but, uh, I do fits and starts, but it taught me a lot about that. The next thing that happened was, uh, that my passion for politics and in college getting involved on campus as well, yeah. you know, Rush Limbaugh's coming out. 
Right. Right. Just yeah. shortly after that. And then when I went to, you know, I came out in 1989. So he had started about 88 and then the 1990s, I would totally pay attention to what he was doing. Right. I mean, I didn't just listen to the show cause I was interested in the content. Yeah. I was paying attention. How does he come in and out of breaks? Oh yeah. Uh, how does he choose his topics? Kind of get a sense of that. Uh, how does he do, why does, where does he throw in the, the comedic stuff in the middle of it? Yeah. Uh, different things like that. I paid deep attention to it. And then, and so I got involved in campaigns. I'm writing commercials, radio commercials, and I'm thinking through how to compose that, all this stuff. And I just was like, man, if I ever got a chance. So a friend of mine who's a, a, a left-wing comedian from Indianapolis who wrote for Bob and Tom, that Bob and Tom program. Yeah. And we've, we've remained good friends to this day. He's a really great guy. But he had a radio show in Indianapolis, and everyone went on with pseudonyms. <laughs> when they would call in and I went in with a pseudonym That's awesome. and he invited, he loved the, 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 his, the people that were there, no right. matter their political affiliation. I, he let me in studio a few times with some other people with pseudonyms. Right. It, it, the bug hit me and I just wanted to do it. So when I got opportunities to do it in Colorado, it, it, it I, you know, I was already hooked, totally stuck. Yeah. And it was hard being in DC and not being able to be on radio, you yeah, know, I no loved doubt. it. Yeah. So that's why I, we I think the most challenging thing about, because it's so funny is everybody thinks they can do a talk radio show. Right. And I think the most challenging thing about it is um, what people want and what people gravitate to is authenticity. Yeah. And I remember when I first started, I worry, you know, and especially in the journalism side of it. Yeah. Diction, grammar, all that stuff made a lot of, it was very important. Yeah. Um, but as I got into talk radio, I, I really began to create my own style, which was just conversational yeah. and to the point that grammar didn't really matter to me. Um, even, you know, you have to, you have to project and you have to, um, you have to enunciate so that people understand, but right. there, there also has to be an element of being a normal person, having a normal conversation with other normal people. Mm -hmm. Right. And that sort of authenticity, I think is what anchors a host to an audience Yeah, is they have to get in their car and feel like I need to hear what that person has to say, because that person is speaking for me. He's speaking like me. You know what I mean? And I think that that's, um, there, that, that's a hard thing for, for, for hosts sometimes to catch, yeah, you know, is that ability to just be a normal person and react to things the way a normal person does. And when you do that, there's just something that connects you to the audience because again, you know, there, there's a, I have this concept of leadership that I refer to as advocate leadership. And there's a difference between being an advocate and a crusader, right? right? When you see talk show hosts go out in flames generally what happened is they became a crusader. Yeah. They were no longer an advocate. The crusader is I have this one issue that's so important to me. You must listen to me on it and you must believe what I have to say about it. And then they get caught in this little tunnel and there's a small group that's very loyal to them because they buy into that crusade. Yeah, true. But the rest of the people are like, ah, you're not talking for me anymore. Cause I really don't care about the, the price of toilet paper in Mexico. Right. 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 But an advocate is finding those buttons that everyone is out there pushing and tapping into those and then fighting for those. 
And that's like a fine line. That's a difficult yeah. balance too, it is. because yeah. you want it to be consistent with what is what you're well, passionate to, about as well. It has to be authentic. Absolutely. If it's not authentic, right. you're screwed. That's exactly right. Yeah. And if, if you're on there telling people you believe something that you don't believe, because I've had people ask me that before. They're like, do you really believe what you say? I'm like, I wouldn't say it if I didn't believe it. <laughs> yeah. like, do I hyperbolize? Yes. Yeah, yeah, do yeah. I exaggerate? Yes. <laughs> do I add things for entertainment value? Do I embellish stories sometimes? Sure. Yeah. But I really believe what I say. If, if I'm not on principle, man, you're going to know it. Yeah, exactly. exactly. People are smart. People are way smarter than a lot of people give credit for. Well, in fact, yeah. I'm totally convinced that the American electorate, they're slow to respond. Mm-hmm but that's because they're living their lives. Right. Once they get a chance to take in the information, then they, they're on it. Yeah. And they make the changes. If Republicans are being idiots, they kick them out. Right. If Democrats are being idiots, they kick <laughs> them out. And it's right. happened both ways. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that's one of the great things about this medium is that it gives you an opportunity to help people bring their own context into it. And that's why I like what you say about advocating. Right. Because even though it's your passion, you're advocating for them, right. not for yourself. Right. And what's interesting is it's kind of, it's kind of, it's kind of like marriage in a way. It's yeah. like, it's like if you love on your spouse, if a, if a husband loves on his wife or a wife respects her husband and they, they both are putting that effort into it, right. that is totally selfless. It all works great. Yeah. In, in, in the end, if you don't, it messes everything up. Yeah. I think there's a lesson in getting along with people in that. Like if I, if I meet some random person on the street, there's something that they believe that they're passionate about that I'm also passionate about and I believe it. No matter what our politics are, no matter what our background is, no matter what our race is. When you, when you look at people and say, we're going to find whatever that common ground is and we can advocate for each other on that. Yeah. There's, there's, there's a lesson in getting along because, you know, there's a lot of things I'm passionate about and I believe in, I never talked about on the radio, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Because I knew that wasn't going to connect with the audience. Right. So that doesn't mean I'm not being authentic and I'm not following my principles. It just means what I'm going to do is I'm going to find where I do connect with this group and I'm going to hit that. Yeah. Because that's how you get along with people. Yeah. You know, and if you walk into a room full of liberals, there's still something there. Yeah. I got the, I got the fur baby award or whatever it was <laughs> in Louisville one year from the humane society um, for helping to get Romeo's law passed in Kentucky, which was the first law to make it a felony to torture a dog or a cat. And I remember governor Bashir, the original mm-hmm. um, had a signing ceremony that I was invited to. And they brought in, um, Romeo, which the do- the law's named after Romeo. He's mm-hmm. a white lab that was caught on tape by a neighbor just being viciously tormented by his owner. Mm. He survived it, found a new home. We brought Romeo in and he signed the legislation. It's probably the only legislation in America that's, that's signed awesome. by a dog paw. <laughs> but again, here's me standing there with Governor Bashir. We're yeah. talking UK basketball yeah. and puppies. Right. Right? We disagree on everything else. Yeah, yeah. But in that moment, you know, it's... It, it, the Humane Society giving a conservative talk show host an award for animal advocacy. Look, we connected on that, you know? So there's, I don't know, there's a lesson in that and how we can all get along because there's something we're all going to advocate for that we agree with. I think that's why, by the way, a lot of people from any political perspective, like Joe Rogan, yeah, he connects to all those Mm -hmm. people from different sides. He's really interested in what they have to say and listening to it. Doesn't always agree. 
you, you have him. I, I just recently had Peter Schiff on. Yeah, I heard that. I heard that episode. <laughs> and then he had Oliver Stone scared, on. <laughs> that, that Peter Schiff episode scared the crap out of me. I was like, yeah. I go home and I'm like, honey, buy gold. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'm just like, buy gold now. By the way, scares the crap out of you as a podcaster too. Sure. Because he kept talking, he was doing it remotely, talking yeah. over Joe. And it's like, yeah. Joe's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, Peter. Yeah. I kept <laughs> so. going, shut up, Peter. But still, I was still enthralled. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he was interested too. But the Stone was, episode was awesome. It was an excellent, excellent yeah. interview. But see, that's the thing. You can have, these are two guys that are on entirely different yeah. aspects of the political spectrum. By the way, they probably meet on the civil libertarian sure. aspect of things. Yeah. But they're so different politically, and yet it's engaged. That's, that's, you know, I'm trying to do that always on this podcast. And um, I, I just think that people are, and this why, who would have thought podcasting would be so big? I mean, right. it's, it's, it's shortly going to supplant on-air radio. I agree. And, Absolutely agree. And, and it's convenient uh, you don't have to figure out that, oh, I got to get in the car, you know, when so-and-so's on or turn on the radio. It's just, it's right there for you. And, and, um, and then it's accessible within, it's got a lot of different kinds of information because people are doing a lot of different types of things. And so I think that that's really critical. It's going to be useful for society, but doing this the right way is going to help people really re-engage yeah. with what's going on around them. And I, yeah. that's why, I mean, it's why I wanted to get into it. I know you're seeing the results of yeah, it, too. it I, I think what's interesting about podcast, I agree with you that it's going to supplant terrestrial radio. And in fact, you could notice that the leading radio companies are really emphasizing podcasts. Yeah. Um, my former company, iHeart, was very smart yeah. in this. Um, my podcast is on the iHeart Radio app. By the way, mine is too. Sweet. Yes. You got in there. Yes, yes. But, but they, they are the number one distributor of podcasts. And what's really interesting about that is their app is really crappy. Right. It sucks. <laughs> but but, <laughs> but I people like, are using it. But I like the fact that um, it delivers yeah. those episodes directly to you. That, But here's the difference, right? Yeah. I spent the last 15 years of my life literally bound to the idea of, are we getting thousands of listeners or not, right? Like massive numbers of people. Now, the podcast thing, it's very different. I mean, you do want big numbers, but nobody's going to be Joe Rogan. You know, Joe right. Rogan with his tens of or millions. Or Adam Carolla. Or yeah. Adam Carolla with right. their tens of millions of, right. of audience a week. Those guys were literally in this at the very beginning, and they've been slogging away. But what the future is, it's going to be a lot more segmented. And it's going to be a lot more, um, I think, listener-driven mm -hmm. because people now, instead of going – what do I have to listen to between nine and noon? Oh, it's this show, this show, or that show. Right. Now it's, what do I want to listen to while I'm driving to such and such yeah. for an hour and 15 minutes? Yeah. And it's what they're interested in getting downloaded directly to their phone. Yeah. And if you're not in that zone, they're not going to download you. That's exactly right. So it's right. a totally different ball game. And like you said, you have to do it in a way that is compelling to people. And instead of just, you know, getting on a microphone and just assuming that tens of thousands are going to tune you in because you're the only option. It's like, it's basically streaming, right? Yeah, yeah. What, what we used to have ABC, NBC, CBS. Yeah. And now like, what was it? I was listening. Speaking of Joe Rogan, there yeah. was, um, who did he have on the other day that was talking about, Oh, it was Rob Lowe. He was talking about his first TV oh, yeah. show. I, I, I heard that. Yeah, and yeah. he was like, we were, we were 98th or whatever it was <laughs> in the ratings, which yeah. was dead last. Yeah. And we had 16 million viewers. Yeah. 
CNN's lucky if they pull 500,000 today. That's correct. Be- partly because they suck, but partly because there's so many other options. Yeah, no, you know? I, I remember uh, Rob mentioning that because I listened yeah. to that podcast too. It blew, my, you blew yeah. some, it blew Joe Rogan's mind. Right. I mean, think about that for a minute. It, so now uh, we're, we're in an entirely different place. Where, where, and, and to be candid, it's more efficient. I find it more efficient, the, all the different channels on cable television, for right. example. Right. It, it's efficient for me because if I, I, I'm really interested in science, so I, I'll pull on up the science channel when I want right. to. Sure. And, and I know there are a bunch of people that aren't there, but, but, it, but it's a, co- a good combination because they o- not only have to do the science, they have to make it approachable for everybody. Yeah. So th- their numbers actually on cable TV are pretty high right. for, for today's type numbers, but because they cast that net that way. So it's a real interesting combination. It's niche, yeah. but accessibility. Yeah. And I think if you have a compel, if you're having a compelling discussion, like I used to, the greatest compliment people used to give me is they would say, dude, I was in my garage and I sat there for 10 minutes because I got to, I had to hear the end of what you were saying, mm-hmm. right? That's live radio. Yeah. Yeah. Now you don't have to do that. Yeah. I literally will listen to Joe Rogan's podcast. And when I get in the car, I get to the house. I just turn it off. Yeah. I know I'm going to pick up right where that conversation exactly. left off. So I'm cool with that. Yeah. When I get back in the car in an hour and a half, I'll hear the rest of it, yeah. you know? So that on demand is, is what it is. But if, if it's compelling content, it has yeah. to be compelling. It really does. Yep. Um, so, uh, getting down in the dirty then and where we're at because um we we've got really major struggles mm-hmm. taking place in this country right now yep which also i mean just thinking about the podcasting it makes pod, this is one of the reasons covid being home and and the way that events are transpiring is one of the big reasons why podcasts are going to change it's kind of like yeah brick and mortar is changing now yeah after covid There'll be some brick and mortar there. I mean, Walmart's going to be around, Target right. is, some of these. But, but people are going to buy online. I mean, the, the growth has been crazy. Yeah. Well, that's going to happen with podcasts too. So we're in a place right now where the debate in this country is radically different, I think, than just about any time in American history. Mm-hmm. Now, we've had times in our, our history where it got intense and people were grappling with them, even sometimes violent, to be candid. I mean, think sure. of, people think this is the first 1920s, time. 1920s, anarchists bombing places. Yeah, go back to uh, the Andrew Jackson era. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, the Civil War era. Yeah. So, you know, we, we've seen this sort of thing happen, but it is a little bit different because we're talking about a, a radically different set of ideas right. that, are, that are coming to the fore, or at least getting attention. Yeah. Where are we at right now? What What do you see in this covid slash blm antifa era where, where do you see us going right now what are you observing and what are people giving you in feedback as you're you know putting your message out there i'm actually um i'm deeply concerned um because i think that this is different yeah and i guess i'll tell you why i think it's different um for lack of a better way of framing this i'll just say twitter um you look at twitter and about 90% of the activity, 22% of the American people are on the Twitter platform, 22%. Mm-hmm. Of that 22%, 90% of them never say a word. The other 10% basically drive all of that conversation. And you might say, well, that means they're insignificant then, but they're not. Why? Because in the media, 90% of the people in the media are left wing. 
those people that are driving the Twitter conversation are left wing. Twitter gives the media a convenient way of framing a news story falsely. So in other words, when media goes on and they say on 10 o'clock news on Twitter today, right? Yeah. And then the whole, they frame an entire story. And when they frame it that way, they frame it as if this is the entire nation's thinking about this person. So when somebody gets destroyed on Twitter, it's because everybody hates them. Yeah. Everybody disagrees with what they said. Somebody says something controversial, does something controversial, it's Twitter. Here's what's happening that's dangerous. There's an entire different America. We saw this emerging in 2016. Mm -hmm. In 2016, it was the polls. They were wrong. There was a hidden population that was silent, but they were the majority. Well, they weren't the overall majority, but they were the majority in key states. Yeah. yeah right. There was yeah. this massive population that was completely unaccounted for. That still exists, and that lesson hasn't been learned. There are a lot of people I've seen. The best way to sort of capsulize this is the people will, will sometimes say, wait till the ones who just want to be left alone get involved. Yeah. That is a huge segment of the population. It that is. just wants to be left alone. And so it's not accounted for, but it exists. So what I see is a sort of schism developing, right? You have the Twitterati and they're driving the conversation. They're setting the rules for conversation. Can't say this, can't say that, this can't do, can't do that. But there's this other population of people who've been living their lives a certain way for their entire life. And suddenly they're being given a whole new set of rules and they're going, who are you to tell me that? Right. Mm -hmm. That schism I think is dangerous because I don't know what's going to happen in the election. There's a lot of upheaval. There's a lot of question about the whole mail-in balloting and all that kind of stuff, which yeah. normally I'm not against mail-in balloting some States can do it. Some States can't. We're not prepared to do a federal election that way. There's going to be chaos. And I just, I see this sort of huge schism developing. There's, I think the vast majority of people disagree with burning, looting, rioting. But I think there's a large chunk of the American population that leans left in their thinking and therefore is afraid of the small percentage of their political body that is driving that violence, looting, and all those things. And I want to be careful to distinguish. There's two different things here. The original idea behind the protests, I'm on board with. But I think so is everyone else in America. Yeah. Reform is coming. Right. That's, that's not going to, that is going to happen. And so we best be prepared to be at the table talking about how we want that reform to look. But it's going to happen. The yep. conversation that needs to happen is going to happen. But what's driving what's happening now in cities is not in any way tied to that reform. It's right. not tied to that agenda. It's tied to something else entirely. And we have a major political party in America that is so afraid of that small fraction of their party, which is driving this Marxist ideology mm -hmm. that they're doing what it, they're doing their bidding. Yeah. And that to me is terrifying because again, we go back to the other population I told you about that ain't about to take any Marxism. Right. <laughs> right. Right. And that clash is coming because if, if that one particular party controls the country after November 3rd and starts allowing that small percentage of its population within that group of political thinkers to set the rules for everybody else, that's going to be a recipe for chaos. You know, uh, I've been, Does that makes sense. No, no, it okay. absolutely makes sense. I, I am, uh, my, my cons, I, I believe that, uh, so to speak, Donald Trump is going to not only win the popular vote, I think he's going to have, uh, an electoral mandate. I mean, that's what's setting up and just 
mm-hmm. just the political prognosticator sure. I am, constantly having to look at polls, running campaigns. Right. Uh, that's that's what my spidey sense tells me right now. But I will say this: the most interesting factor on this, and and it'll play out in how people react to the end result. Yeah. The, the people you're describing is that this mail ballot thing. I mean, we're typically done with the election on election day. Right. We're not. And I don't know. think that's going to happen. Yeah, we're not going to know for maybe lucky by December 1st. Now, I remember back in the day when Al Franken ran against Norm Coleman up in Minnesota. Yes. And Norm Coleman had it won yeah. the night of the election. Narrow. Right. But he had it won. And then Shazam, 3,500 ballots pop up in someone's trunk. Right. I mean, that was the actual story. Right. Stuff like that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. I'm on both I, sides, probably po- possibly uh, listen, yeah. I, I, ha- I know specifically of certain instances where uh, I'm not going to say who, but previous cam- previous presidential campaigns in on the Republican side have actually mm-hmm. done illegal stuff right. to get that. But I, I find it, I'm more concerned because Democrats are actually trying to institutionalize it. So right. California's lost right now right, sure. for Republicans. But the reason it's lost is because of the way that they've changed voting there. Mm-hmm. It, you have vote gathering is entirely legal. Right. And you know, I, there were just reports on some of these recent problems that have happened with mail-in voting where, in fact, there was an article recently where um, uh, an anonymous person was talking with a reporter over in New Jersey and said, listen, what we do is we, we gather up the votes. We take, we, we, we make a copy of the ballot. Yeah, this was actually reported hmm. and, and they over steam. I mean, like your grandma did when she was wanting to see what your letter said, Yeah. Uh, over steam, the outside of the ballot that signed, they're steaming it up, opening the ballot, pulling out the old one and putting the new one in. This has been happening. This was just recently reported in the Northeast. Um, if anything like that happens, and by the way, you can't do that on a massive scale, but you can right. do it on enough of a scale can, to turn things. You can do it in areas where you're talking about a razor's edge election, and we're talking about states where one precinct could decide. Except in California. Except in California. Where it can be done on a mass scale. Right. So they organize volunteers to go door to door, and they're right. probably going to gather up tens of thousands of, right. of ballots. I mean, if, let's take a state like Minnesota or, or Wisconsin where really this presidential election once again could come down to that where Trump successfully eroded the blue wall, so to speak in the Midwest. Right. He connects with those voters in a way that, that no Republican has been able to connect, which we can talk about that later. Cause I, I think there's a major opportunity for Republicans regardless who wins this election, but I doubt they'll accept it. Yeah. (laughs) But, um, he connects with those people on a level that is, is significant, but, there is going there are going to be two or three precincts in each of those states that could potentially determine the outcome of those states and as such potentially determine the outcome of the presidential election mm-hmm. so even though you can't do it on a mass scale that's what obama meant when he said you can't steal an american election well you can because jfk did it yeah you know you you had a couple of precincts in chicago that made the difference in the entire election. By the way, West Virginia too. And West Virginia. And yeah, Southern I forgot West about Virginia. that. West Virginia. Yeah. And, yeah. But, but those two states, insignificant in any other election, because Illinois always goes a certain way and West Virginia is going to go a certain way. But, but as that map shifts, two or three precincts, you get in there and do something in those, and yeah, you can steal an election. Yeah. You know, that's how – but that's when you're talking about razor thin. 
But maybe we can talk about that for a minute. Like, why is it razor thin? Why is it so one side or this side? Right. And I think that that's the other problem that we have in America. And I think Republicans have contributed to this as just as much as Democrats have. Mm -hmm. And that is that both parties exist purely for the sole purpose of opposing the other one. Yeah. That's it. No, that's right. And when you look at, you know, I posted on Facebook the other day, a joking, I'm going to run for president. But the the nine points that I put in there minus the ninth one, I was serious about those things. That's yeah. truly how I feel about how the country ought to be run. Yeah. I would beg to guess, especially based on the reaction to that, that 60, 70, 80% of the American population could probably get on board with seven out of nine of those. Yeah. Meaning that if, if a political party spoke like that, They'd win in a landslide. You know, I wouldn't be a razor's edge election. No, you're right. And by the way, in all the eight years that I spent on Capitol Hill, I was chief of staff for Thomas Massey and for Tim Hill's camp. Mm -hmm. In all that time, the greatest threats to each of those men politically were Republicans, not not Democrats. Now, if the Republican Party actually voted for and stood by its platform, yeah. which I don't find perfect. Right. But it's pretty, I, I think, I think that they'd be, they would totally they win every election. Every election. Yeah. If they would, if they would back off some of the social issues and focus, but that, but that's the problem is now, that, by the way, the abortion issue really is coming back because of the way Trump has that, done. I don't, it. I don't consider abortion a social issue. Okay. So I, what do you mean by social issues then? I mean, it's, I would like to see Republicans advocate stronger for things like criminal justice reform. Yes, absolutely. Opportunity zones, because you have to recognize that it was less than a lifetime ago that some of our fellow Americans couldn't drink from the same water fountain. Yeah, that's right. You know, and there's, there's everything about fixing those injustices cries out to the Republican platform of freedom, liberty, and letting everybody have an equal shot. And there's some things we can do that are free market based. Yeah. That will allow folks that have been caught up in that cycle to break those cycles. And I think Republicans should be first. I think the best example of that is Rand Paul. Yeah. He, you know, I was so disgusting the other night when he was in DC and getting attacked and they were chanting, say her name. And I'm like, this is the freaking author of the bill that names her name. That's right. Right. (laughs) Right. But he's, that's not a political ploy for him. He's been consistent. Absolutely. One of the first places he visited when he became U.S. Senator was the West end of Louisville. Yeah. And he started out with the idea of opportunity zones, which are not necessarily based on race, but they're based on economic depressed areas. And these are free market ideas to regenerate, to generate wealth in those areas, right? This was the Jack Kemp idea, you know, and and it's why the black community loved Jack Kemp because he saw this problem and what it was. And he knew it wasn't limited to black folks. It was an inner city problem. And to be candid, a Democrat problem, or at least a local Democrat problem, uh, because most of these cities have been run by Democrats and they take away opportunity through taxes and regulations and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. The last thing I can ever purport to do is speak for a group of people um, but I have a feeling that various minority groups in America are not Marxists. I grew up in the Southwest, so I grew up around a lot of Hispanic people and in that culture, and I didn't know very many Marxists. No. I knew people that wanted a fair shot. Mm-hmm. They wanted, a, they wanted a, seat, a seat at the table. They wanted to play in the game. Mm-hmm. And if Republicans were more, I don't understand, like I, I loved 
most of the Republican convention. Yeah. You had speakers, you had African-American speakers up there talking about freedom and liberty. And you saw there was a coinciding bump in the polls for Trump. No doubt. On, on, in the black vote. But you know what would have literally avoided this entire summer? Is if right after the George Floyd incident broke, if President Trump had gone to Minnesota, Minneapolis, and stood there and said, we're going to fix this. You know what I mean? It's like you would yep. have never had the whole defund police bullcrap because it wouldn't have gotten any kind of traction at all. Um, I think he, I actually think Trump could have sold up the election on that day if he had gone and said, I'm going to go visit here. This is a serious issue. And we as Republicans take this as a serious issue. We are for the police. We support police, but we recognize there needs to be some reform. And we recognize what this looks like from your perspective. And by the way, I know that you and I, we, we, we have a strong civil libertarian right. uh, uh, part of us yeah. that uh, some various friends of ours, Young Americans for Liberty, I'm on the National Advisory Board yeah. for that organization, Matt Kibbe over at Free the People, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and some other organizations. I had Matt on my podcast recently. This, this, this is an area that, that and, and, and which proves your point in my opinion, but this is an area where these are groups that are gaining huge traction in their various uh, constituencies um, that I think a lot of Republicans had no idea that Rand Paul is going to be a leader in the future. Thomas yeah. Massey as well. Um, be, in, from the Republican perspective with groups that we would have never thought before. Yeah. Because this really is passionate for a lot of people. I got, a, I had my friend, uh, Ken Johnson, former chaplain of the Indianapolis Colts, big dude, he and I never talk black, white, and he's black and I'm white. Yeah. And then when stuff like this comes up, we, we said it on the podcast. We got, we got to talk. We hate talking race because right. we don't even think about race. Right. But he deals with things that happen to him. Yeah. I've got other uh, friends of mine that they deal with this. And people intuitively know that this is a problem. Yes. Not because uh, the police forces are racist, right. but because of just mostly ignorance and, and very small, thin yeah. line of racism that might actually exist. And but people know this in society and it resonates right. and Republicans have missed that opportunity. But the biggest reason that they've missed the opportunity, it, it's kind of new Gingrich's fault because we've gone to the lobbyists right. to, to fill all the gaps. Right. I see this in campaigns. You go NRCC or Republican national committee, national Republican campaign committee or for, with the house or Republican national committee, they have their incestuous relationships with just a few vendors who do political things yeah. who are not in the least about winning elections or getting to a message that matters. They're entirely about getting the media buys and right. getting all the other stuff. Yeah. And the Republican party has failed because they are, there's a real incestuous core at yep. the leadership that turns off the American people. Yeah. And there's a, there's an attitude of, well, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and that's what we're here to provide. Right. While the American people see that the little guy gets crushed by cronyism, which yeah. cronyism was cr was created by both parties. Yes. It's not an exclusive domain of Republicanism. No. It's not an exclusive domain of dem demo Democrats. It was created and it's allowed to flourish under both parties because that is what the elites do to eat at the trough. And the average American steps back. I, 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 I contend that Americans' political views are so much more nuanced than red and blue, even my own. Yeah, right. Yeah. Like, am I on the red team? I'm on the, if you, if you were to say what party do you belong to Leland, I would say I belong to the don't tread on me party. Yeah. Don't get in my way and I won't get in yours. And here, let me help you achieve your dreams. Right. 
that's pretty much it, man. If, if we have that commonality, we're going to walk in lockstep. Yeah. I want to see people get left alone. Yeah. That's what I want. I want people to be able to do, and, and if they need help, let's all help. But I mean, I, I, that's the party that I belong to. But when you start breaking down political views, it's so much more nuanced. Like, let's take immigration for a second. And this is kind of what I mean by social issues too. Because when you asked about abortion, abortion is not a social issue for me because it's a life issue. Yeah. Now, is there wiggle room and debate area? Sure. Sure. But life is life. Okay. So I don't see that as a social issue. I know it's owned by the social issue mantle. But when I say social issue, I say this, like, um, I have several friends in the homosexual community. Mm-hmm. All of them are conservative when it comes to fiscal stuff. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Republicans aren't really banging the anti-gay marriage drum anymore because that's kind of moved on. Right. But there's also not this wide open arms like, come in, be a part of our family. Yeah. We don't care about we don't care who you choose to love. We just care that we're all in this for liberty. Right. Right. There's not an embracing of that. Yeah. There should be an embracing of that. And to the point then uh, in terms of social issues, I think criminal justice is a social issue. Yeah. And too often conservatives have said, throw them all in jail. They commit a crime, do the time. There's a whole lot of nuanced ways we can deal with that. So a perfect example is immigration. Yeah. Okay. I grew up on the border with Mexico. My dad's had several run-ins with the cartels, dangerous ones. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Still faces them as a 76-year-old man. I worry about him every day. He's and, 20 miles from the Mexican and, border. And by the way, just to, to clarify, yeah. the key, key, hold that thought for a moment, but I, I lived in, in the Phoenix area for yeah. a little while. Uh, you lived really close to the yep. Arizona border when you grew up. Yep. Um, in Globe, Arizona, I lived way out in East Mesa. In okay. Globe, Arizona, every night I knew people in that area, and there were illegals running up their fields. That's mm-hmm. a kind of a rural area of the of the yeah. Phoenix area. I mean, every night yeah. it's happening. That that is more like a hundred miles from the border. That's oh, yeah. how bad that is. Well, they're so, trying yeah. they're trying to get to Phoenix, right? Because that's where they can get picked up, and they can then get dispersed throughout the rest of the country. Correct. When I was a kid, there was there's a wash behind my house, a dry wash. It's like a dry creek bed. Mm-hmm. Um, my best friend and I would sit up on the apex of the roof of our house and watch them come up the wash. My mom kept a I, an igloo cooler full of water on the front porch, and they would come and get water because they were coming out of the desert. Yep, totally dry, totally parched. She'd fix them sandwiches and then call border patrol because she's an old Kentucky girl who doesn't want anybody to go home without an, on an empty stomach. Yeah. Right? Yeah. She would care for them and then call law enforcement. But at that time when I was growing up, it was purely people coming up here to work. Right. But this issue is nuanced in the sense that I am for secure borders. I'm for building a fence and a wall where it makes sense. I'm also for a virtual wall. But I'm also for a humane solution to people who have come here, had children here, whose children have grown up here, don't even speak the language of the place their parents came from, and then no one in their family has committed any further crime beyond coming in here. If you're willing to pledge allegiance to the United States, learn how to speak English so you can prosper, not because we're prejudiced, but so you can prosper, because that's the business language, and pay maybe a small fine for having come here illegally, then let's fast track your citizenship. Now, Saying both of those things at the same time is incongruent with the major discussion in America. To say I'm for secure borders and a humane solution for immigration. Because I, as a libertarian, I don't subscribe to the, I think, archaic and frankly, somewhat racist idea that every immigrant that comes here steals a job from an American. Yeah. No, it doesn't. Yeah. They do not. Right. If, I agree. They, if you come here and you're innovative, the, the economy is not freedom is not a finite pie yeah. there is not only a set amount of freedom that only certain people can have yeah so if you've been vetted 
and you are clearly interested in following your American dream and you want to be a part of this awesome experiment, fast track that. I have a friend whose wife is in Brazil. They've been married four years. He can't get her into the United States. She's a nurse. Who says we couldn't use a nurse? Yeah, exactly. She's highly educated. She does not need government assistance to get by, right? So fast track that. But I will be accused of being an open borders liberal for saying that. Or when I said, let's build a wall, I'm going to be accused of being a racist. Yeah, right? But right. Every, almost every single American lives where I live. So right. that's my point. It's like it's nuanced, right? And listen, it's, it doesn't have to be a path to citizenship either. Uh, one of the things that we did when I was worked for Tim Hill's camp, and he had the western two-thirds of Kansas mm -hmm. at the time, uh, big-time farm community, but a lot of cattle. Right. In fact, it, it, the number of cattle on the ground and, and produced in processing plants, uh, Kansas is the biggest cattle state. Right. Texas has more on, on the ground. But anyway, you've got there are a lot of really well trained people. Yes. In in Mexico and Central America, yeah. that are capable of working with this cattle, we, and they they can only come up on current green card status in a nine month window. Right. And then they got to go back, right. which kills the cattle industry. I mean, it's great for California right. and all the produce industry they got there, but it's horrible for uh people in kansas you could have really trained people and they don't have to become citizens not all not all of them necessarily right. feel like that they have americans they want to work in great britain that's right they work in canada and they they want to send back money back home to their families so that they can yeah. survive yeah. and and they find a, a better opportunity here so there are ways we can do that too i'm more on the green card status right. end of what you're saying i think the path to citizenship thing should be a higher barrier sure and it should be yeah. purposeful but you know we're, we're shutting off green cards h1b visas right. all this stuff all the there's time there's a lot of people who are not terrorists yes who could come here and contribute to our economy in one way or another and it's not going to steal a damn thing for many Americans. Well, and I'm 100% with what right. you're saying. Yeah. I think the real critical issue is voting. Right. That's where this becomes a real problem. Right. Because many states are trying to allow non-citizens exactly. to vote. Right. And that's, that is where the, the line has to be bright and clear, and yeah. the wall on that line should be very firm legally. Right. But see, that again, I'm with you. We're talking about nuance. Right. Right. Immigration isn't just shut it all down right. or open it all up. Right. It's, 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 not, and it's not about being somebody who rides the fence in the middle. That's not it. It's just that within what we've, what we've done in America, I think, and I blame the media for this largely, and the parties, yeah. is trying to we, – we oversimplify everything and we lump too much into big categories. The idea of immigration is not one issue. It's a thousand issues. Right. It's the voting security issue. It's the families that have been here issue. It's the green card issue. It's the terrorism issue. It's the criminal issue, the drug issue. It's all of those different issues. So you can't possibly lump your opinion on immigration reform into one element, a wall or not a wall. Yeah. That's absurd. Yeah. And everybody intuitively knows this. And yet for whatever reason, especially with social media, we still default to those red and blue camps. Right. Why do we do that? Well, and, and Republicans make uh, real mistakes on this whole social issue thing as you're framing it. It's because of the window up, window down aspect right. of it. Right. It's like everyone knows it's compassionate uh, criminal justice reform. 
everyone knows it's compassionate. I mean, truly compassionate. Right. I'm, not, I'm not saying it from the Democrat idea of compassionate because everything's about the children type stuff. Right, right. I'm talking about real compassion. Everyone knows it's compassionate and humane to, to try to think through the nuances of this issue. But the problem with Republicans often, I think Democrats too, but certainly Republicans, is that they run away from yep. things because they see it as a binary issue right. and they don't understand the nuances. But the binary issue, that's what gets you canceled. Yeah. And that's why everybody runs away from it, right? I mean, okay, like here's a perfect example. I can say I am for criminal justice reform, but in California, a prosecutor just said we have to take the needs of the rioters and looters into, con yeah. into, into, yeah. into concern before yeah. we decide whether or not to prosecute them. That's bull crap, yeah. right? That's not criminal justice reform. No. That's letting people get away with crimes that are destroying people's lives. Where on the other end of it, you've got people that have small possession of drugs right. That you know, we can we can discuss the moral issue. That's fine. Yeah, we've got a rule of law issue here. Right. So we're throwing people that have a couple joints yeah. into prison for two years, where they become part of that system, and we're not understanding what effect that has. We and and you know, Republicans hate this mm -hmm. statistic, but we really do incarcerate more people on a per capita basis. I mean, by far, they there's not a country China. close. Yes. I mean, like, yeah, seriously. Like, now, I mean, now when they get in, we treat them much better than they do sure, in China. Yeah, yeah. But and that is an important fact. Right. But seriously, let's just understand here. Yeah. We've got to entirely stop how how we are approaching this thing. But that that's a that's a huge issue right now. Yeah. We we can't. We, Republicans have got to deal with this because it's real to people. Yeah, I I think and I because how many people have somebody in their family that's been on meth? Right. Right. And you go, do you want that person to have a permanent fel felony record? Right. Or do you want that person to get the rehab they need so they can go back to being a productive citizen? Yeah. Now, if they have a permanent felony record, they're going to cost us a lot more money over time because first we're going to have to incarcerate them for mm -hmm. however long that's going to be. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to have to prop them up with government assistance because they can't find a job. Yeah. Versus if I get you the rehab you need and I spend $20,000 upfront instead of 150000 over the course of your lifetime, that's a win for taxpayers. That's a free market, conservative, small government win for, for taxpayers. But Republicans won't touch that with a 10-foot pole because that means we're redistributing money. No, yeah. we're not. We're fixing a problem the way it needs to be fixed. We're dealing with an issue. Yeah. And it's like, whether we like it or not, this problem exists and you can't just let people die on the streets like that. You know? But, yeah. And there's some <clears throat> dichotomy between Republicans and Democrats on these social issues like you're talking about. There's one right. area of policy where there's no dichotomy at all. They're almost running neck and neck. They're the uniparty. Yeah. And that's economic issues. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, hundred percent. They spent now, now some of there's some nuance to the little things that they differentiate on. But very little of that. I heard somebody say the other day, I was like, really economically, the difference between Republicans and Democrats is, do you want a top rate, top, top income tax rate of 39.6 or 36? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I'm like, that's a pretty good point. No, that's right. <laughs> um, and now, now, and where they do differ, which is on social programs and the military, for example, the big spending issues, and those are right. two of the biggest, uh, they, they have a different, almost radically different approach. But the thing is, so the bills will pass. The Republicans, when they're in control, give all the social programs to the Democrats. And the Democrats, when they're in control, give all the military spending. Right. And by the way, and, you, and we're going to get into your uh, uh, kind of some of your proposals here. But we're, we're both for a massively strong military. Yeah. Um, I, I do, like you, want to bring us in from all – this is one of the things I love about Trump right. is bring us in from all these engagements all over the world with ground troops. Yeah. I, I am for a 
some massive uh, uh, carrier groups because well, that, that helps us to quick deploy certain things. Yeah, well, do you know what? You realize what Trump's done here. And this yeah. is an area I have a lot of praise for him in yeah. is his foreign policy. Yeah. Um, he has brought the troops home without ending the projection of power. Right. And this is where I differ with my libertarian friends on foreign policy a little bit. Yeah. And that is that the projection of power that America does around the world acts as a basically cost-free police aspect to the world. I hate to say that because we don't <laughs> like hard. to say we're the world's police, yeah. right? Yeah. But projecting power costs us almost nothing. Mm-hmm. It's when we it's when exercise we get into Iraq it. and Afghanistan. Right, exactly. Where we, we spend can, trillions. But we can project power by having an aircraft carrier group yeah. in the Persian Gulf, right. stopping Iran from doing stupid crap. Yeah. We can project power by floating through the China Sea so that we stop China from building fake islands down there so they put our allies like Japan at threat, right? In Taiwan. Can, in Taiwan. And we can do that without expending any lives, firing any bullets, controlling any countries or despotic dictators, toppling any dictators, or even putting troops on the ground. We can just simply project power. I think Trump's been brilliant with that in that he has projected power while bringing our troops home. Yeah. I'm totally on board with that. Yeah, and, and, he, and he proposes it in such a way, uh, I, I disagree with him on too much in the sanctions area, Sure, but, but on the military area, yeah, don't engage. I, we've, we do, and, and the carrier, by the way, the carrier groups are the best way to keep us from having to have far-flung bases all over the place right? because their cost is much less than, than putting a lot of troops on the ground somewhere. Right. And, and there might be some places for that, but I, I'm with you. I'm listen. I I believe with Ron Paul on the non-aggression yeah. aspect. I mean, right. I, I don't think we need to be the aggressors. There's I think we do too much projecting of that. power. Have, That's right. Have you ever been in a situation where you have somebody's causing trouble from somebody, and you walk into a room, and the presence of authority simply calms everything down? Yep. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. I've had that happen before where I'm a tall, I'm a tall guy, you know, and I have a commanding presence and I've walked into rooms before where one person was bothering another and it just yeah. stopped. Yeah. There's nothing like a carrier group sitting by the Strait of Hormuz. That's all it is. I it's, mean, that, yeah. that, that's a really quick way for Iran that's to say, okay, we'll back down for a little bit. Yeah. Then we pull away. What do they do? They get aggressive again. Exactly. And all we're doing is we're not engaging. Yep. All we're doing is uh, seeing where that point of aggression is on the scale up or down. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that that's the best way to do it. Okay, so let's move to this and, and a couple other things before I let you go. No um, so you got the uh, Conway is the right way <laughs> platform. Joking around. Yes. I love it. So, <laughs> I love this, so I was just messing around the other day and a yeah. buddy of mine, um, I can't remember what it was that he said to me, but he texted me something and he was like, it's, it inspired me because he was upset with the way the two parties were going. And so I just kind of sat down and wrote a tongue in cheek meant to be funny, but also with sort of nine points, most of which were serious. Yeah. And uh, we sort of just went through the first one. And I said, this is my platform. If I was running for president one, maintain the strongest, most badass military force in the world, raise their pay, bring them home into all wars, kick terrorists ass whenever and wherever they pop up with special forces. Yeah. That kind of takes upon Donald Rumsfeld's um, strategy. Of the good side of his the strategy. Good side he of had his a strategy. sucky side he had, too. A, he had a very <laughs> sucky side. But the one thing he did good yeah. that did right, yeah. here's my grammar again, was he recognized small, mobile, fast, lightning quick forces that can go in and kick the snot out of a terrorist group and then get the hell out. 
Yeah. And I mean, we essentially could have done that in Afghanistan from the get go. We talked oh, to the Taliban in two weeks. Yeah. And it was a special forces group that went in there, scared the ever loving crap out of them, toppled their power. And then we, we could have just got out of Dodge. Yeah. The only good thing we got out of Iraq and Afghanistan is we, we, we upped our strategies yeah, right. along this line. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it wasn't worth it. Right. But we did. Right. But we did receive it. Yeah. So, yeah. um, point number two, we sort of covered this too. convene yeah. criminal justice reform convention. Why not? Yeah. Why not pull people together? Why not bring police to the table? Yeah. Why not bring former prisoners to the table, bring some politicians to the table, bring some people with addicts in their family to the table and have a criminal justice reform to talk about how do we revisit how we train police officers. Right. Um, I saw a story the other day. I, I don't have all the details of it, but that, that it's right in the police manual in the George Floyd case, right in the police manual in Minneapolis, how to do the move that that guy was doing. Now, I'm not justifying it. I right, don't think right. anybody is justified in holding their knee on somebody's neck for eight minutes, right. especially when they're not fighting anymore. Right. But the point is, they did what was in the manual. That's got to change, yeah. right? There's other ways to deal with that. But how can we deal? We can't just, you and I are not police officers. I can't project upon the police what they need to do their job. All I can say is, we have a community of people that feel a certain way about this. Can we sit down and talk and figure out how we can fix this so that that perception is no longer there, but you're still able to do your job? By the way, you're exactly right on this approach. Now, think about this for a second. I've been saying out there, there is no reason under heaven and earth for a policeman to shoot someone in the back with deadly force. I don't see any anything on no, that. Well, there's, there's a reason it could happen. No, no, and I'm not, by the way, I'm not going to say that every time right. that that happens, that ultimately when you do the investigation yeah. afterwards, you I, may, you may exonerate the person, but as a standard procedure, right. it should be, no, you, you will not shoot anyone in the back. You should have that stated, but, but, but if you, if you find that you have to, you're going to have to, you're going to have right. to make a case. There are legitimate cases where individuals have been shot in the back by police officers because they had a weapon in their hand and they were turning and shooting and turning yeah, and shooting. Yeah, see, they're, 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 that, but it's right. a nuance. It's, it's rare. It's, it's not a, a nuance. Exactly. It, that's right. That's exactly. my concern. So, yeah. but, but here's, here's the other thing. So, and this is why I'm, I think this sitting down together to talk about a thing is really yeah. helpful because um, uh, you've got another instance, a situation where people are not understanding that some of the stupid things that cops do is just because of the stress in their lives. Yeah. So I, one of the things I think about, this isn't the final thing, but it just as a way to talk about how we sit down together to talk about it, right. is you've got a situation where these cops do on a daily basis get into tense situations. Now they've got a psychological issue yeah. coming up for them that the police departments need to deal with, by the way, with funding. Yeah. Because some to mitigate this problem is going to take long leaves of absence mm -hmm. to deal with sometimes for yeah. guys and gals who are skilled and capable and you want them on the streets, but they need to be able to release the yes. tension. But see, I, people on the other side of the table of this issue sometimes when they see these stupid behaviors, don't have compassion for the cop that right. deals with the normal stress of the job. Right. This kind of, that's why I think this sort of thing is really helpful. When you and I are called upon to do our job, we go to a meeting, we talk to people. Right. When they're called upon to work, to work, yeah, they're dealing with people's worst day. Right. Some kid just got run over by a car, head-on collision, and everybody's dead. 
Yeah. Dealing with the grief of the family. Somebody got shot. Somebody got mugged. Domestic violence. Pulled over somebody. Now it's their worst day because they're not going to make that meeting. Right. That is the type of situation every time we call upon police to work. Yeah. 90% of the time it is a, it is a stressful situation in which the person they're dealing with is having the worst day of their life. Right. Right. So that's something we had to take into consideration. The other thing is I took a training module Well, that wasn't really a training module, but they allowed me to, to be a part of a training module at LMPD in Louisville, where it was a real time virtual lethal use of force training. And I was given these scenarios where the scenario interacted with me live. Mm -hmm. So there were people on the screen that I, they would react to what I say. Yeah. And I took four scenarios where you're supposed to choose, do I need to shoot this person or not? You, you literally have less than a second to make a decision that involves your life or death or their life or death. In four scenarios, I was killed twice. The perpetrator got away after killing someone else because I couldn't stop him in time once. And the last time I killed the perpetrator, but not before he stabbed me with a machete. Yeah. So I was injured. Right. So all four of those times I failed to make the right decision in the right amount of time because I was having to make a decision to go from firearm in my holster to firing at an individual in a split second. Yeah. And people, we see these 20 second video clips that the media gets puts out there because they're clickbait. And it gives us zero context. The Jacob Blake story. Yeah. I don't know all the details on that. I'm not going to prescribe an opinion to that story yet. But I do know that there were extenuating circumstances, that it was not an innocent situation, and that apparently it looks like he may have been armed. Now, does And by that, the way, he was in the commission of a felony. At and he the was time in the commission too. of the felony at the time. Yeah. Now, does that justify the use of force there? I don't know. But the context that we're given by the media does not tell us. Yeah. So again, it's a nuanced issue. Yeah, it's a hu it's a huge problem. So yeah. you, your your idea of getting people sitting down down is really important. You talk about uh, well trained, better paid, highly yeah. vetted police force, encourage community policing. Which, by the way, we've done a decent job of in this country. Right. There are some communities where we haven't gotten. Well, we're into shutting it. it down in places like in Louisville. They're trying to shut down community policing. It's crazy. Community policing. When I say that, I'm talking about if you have a cop that's assigned to a neighborhood. And Mrs. Smith's door is ajar at four o'clock in the morning. He goes to check. Yeah. He's not trying to invade on Mrs. Smith's life. He's trying to make sure Mrs. Smith is okay. That's community policing. You know, I, I felt so, I, I didn't place as a civil libertarian in, on my side of the issue. I didn't have a problem with some of the stop and frisk policies that they, they tried to implement in New York City, which Giuliani did very well and then fell apart a little bit. It's a hard thing to do. But but that, that kind of gets into this thing too. I mean, we got to think through what are, what are the approaches that prevent, right. But don't take civil liberties away. Right. And, and to be candid, we lean on removing fourth, fifth and sixth amendment liberties right. in most of the things that we're doing. And well, the only way to figure that out, by the way, is this sitting down at the table thing. Yeah, absolutely. So let's go to your third one. Uh, tax breaks for regenerative farming. I know that sounds kind of weird and probably a little bit uh, this, this is how close we are to Thomas Massey, by right. the way. Yeah. Well, this is the thing. I'm actually, I've gotten really passionate about this lately. Yeah. I, I don't believe that my SUV is destroying the planet right. in the terms of it's changing the climate. I do believe it's destroying the planet in terms of there's got to be better ways that we can. I'm an all of the above guy. Until we, until we find a better form of, of fuel, use fossil fuels and use them up. Yep. 
fine. I love my big I love, Ford F-250 yeah, diesel. I've got a big <laughs> SUV, and I do not feel an ounce guilty about not it. And I least, leave my yeah. lights on, and yeah. I, I run my air conditioner to 66 at night, <laughs> and I do not feel a bit guilty because that's the power source we have. Yeah. But I do care about the environment, and I also care about healthy food, and I care about farm freedom. I care about farmers being able to farm instead of just being locked out of the business by big industrial conglomerates that have all the tax breaks and all the subsidies from the taxpayers. Yeah. And it, it boxes farmers out from being able to farm. And you could accomplish two things with regenerative farming. And that is that you could, we could return the soil back to, to the way it's supposed to be. Like the whole Midwest of the United States yeah. isn't anything like it was 150 years ago when there were buffalo roaming all over it, peeing and pooping, moving on to the next area, and then eating the grass. Trampling the ground, turning it yes, over. turning yeah. it over. Yeah. That, that is regenerative farming, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a couple of places like Polyface Farms in Virginia where they do this, and they, they move the cows around on a daily basis. You mentioned Massey and his uh, yeah. solar-powered chicken tractor, right. which is a hilarious contraption, but it keeps the foxes away from the chickens but moves them around on the farm so that they're outside they're eating bugs and all the kind. They're not being fed some crap diet that the industrial company made. Right. They're just eating what chickens would eat. Right. And then they taste like chickens are supposed to taste. So I, I would encourage that if I were president, I would be like, let's get more of that because it's going to restore the land. I heard a very scary statistic the other day that we are 60 harvests away from no, not being able to use soil. Like that's 60 years from not being able to grow food. Yeah. Because of how terrible we're treating the land itself. Now, the big problem with this is to be candid is the government regulation. I think the, right. I, by the way, I would eliminate the USDA yeah, and, me too. and, and uh, reform that whole system to incentives right. through taxes, as you say, right. rather than government regulation. I think and the, subsidies. And when you Get drive through subsidies. Washington, DC, I talk about this. If you drive through Washington, DC down Independence Avenue, away from the Capitol, you pass the USDA, uh, one USDA complex, by the way, right. in uh, in DC, and it's on both sides of the road. You have, and it's huge buildings. It's like a quarter mile of buildings on both sides, right? And that is by far the largest bureaucratic complex <laughs> in Washington DC, right? Physically, right. So that doesn't mean there's there, there are larger bureaucracies. Yeah. But when you see that, you recognize this is so out of hand. Yeah. We do not need the federal government to tell us how to farm. Now, I don't have a problem with states determining how they want to regulate right. certain things. But if you give incentives to these farmers, I think that's well, the best here's way an, to Well, here's an example. Okay, Kentucky is the fifth largest cattle, uh, beef cattle producer east of the Mississippi. Yeah. Or I'm sorry, no, the fifth largest in America. Okay. The largest east, east of the Mississippi. Mississippi. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Little Kentucky generates an enormous amount of the beef that Americans eat. Yeah. The vast majority of the time that those cows are alive, they live on grass. Wonderful, healthy, limestone, watered grass, mm. bluegrass, delicious. If you've ever had the same like, stuff we make bourbon from. Same stuff we make bourbon <laughs> from. Same stuff we make horse races from. Yeah. yeah. Horse, ra horse racing horses from. Yeah, yeah. Okay. One of the reasons why they don't have a lot of those farmers don't do quote unquote grass fed beef. They send them off to a slaughter farm or to a, a, a finishing lot where they're fed a bunch of other stuff and then they're fattened up and then they live a stressful life for the last three months of their life. And then they're slaughtered is because there isn't freedom in the slaughter industry. Right there. <clears throat> Massey talks about this yeah, a lot. The Prime Act, right. Is, if, yeah. if you could have a, a slaughterhouse in Shelbyville, mm -hmm. those cattle could stay on that farm until they're ready 
and then they go straight down to the Shelbyville slaughterhouse. You'd have businesses being created there. You would have a shorter food, food supply chain, which protects us in cases like a virus that causes problems with the food supply chain. And you'd have healthier food because it would be less stressed throughout the course of its life. And by the way, this and is the, one of the biggest corporatist things that happens in the United States, right. one of the worst. Right. Yeah. And, and, and so I'm not advocating for more farming regulation. I'm advocating for less of it yeah. because farmers naturally want their land to be usable forever. Right, right. Farmers are natural environmentalists. Yeah. I don't want to tell them how to do what to do. It's, it's in their best interest. It's in to their do best it. interest. And, they're, and the ones that aren't going to do it right are going to freaking lose the game. Yeah. Right. But right now they have to do it a certain way because they're boxed in by big industrial. You know, stuff. it's really so, interesting. People think that the big uh, dust storms of the 1920s and 30s yeah. uh, were caused because farmers went overboard. No, it was because of government regulation. Yeah. It was entirely because 100%, yeah. Uh, uh, number four. Yeah, overhaul the federal tax program. I would begin, I don't know how this would work specifically um, in terms of constitutional amendments. I just kind of threw that together real quick. But I'm for a fair uh, tax. A My personal preference is for a consumption tax only. Yeah. We yeah. ran this country for over 100 years without an income tax. The income tax. And in effect, consumption it, taxes, if, yes. whether it's tariffs or whatever, yep. you know, because yeah. we had no income tax. Exactly. We did levies and tariffs and we did fine. And the vast majority of people were able to just go out and build their own personal economy. And that's what I want to return to. We're, we're at a place sociologically where people don't get offended by the fact that the federal and state and local governments take their labor away right. from them. Right. Uh, all the way through May nowadays. Yeah. I mean, I, that, that, people don't even know they're working literally till May my before wife, it's their own money. My wife was, she's a, she's, she manages a staff, yeah. a pretty large staff and they're mostly young people. And they were having a meeting the other day. One of her staff members was upset and uh, was apparently um, going to leave. And my wife said, you were just hired three months ago and the pay was fine when you were hired. Why did that change? Just trying to figure out what the problem was. And the person said, you guys lied to me about what I'd be making. And she said, how so? She said, well, the bonuses, they take so much in taxes and you didn't tell me. <laughs> and my wife is like, that's the government, not us. Yeah. You're getting exactly what we told you. Yeah, go to the get. next business and get your bonus and see what if happens. You're yeah. too, she didn't say this, but yeah. if you're too dumb to figure out what the government is taking from you, you know, but the point was it highlights, especially with young people who don't understand how this works. It was literally, it was literally deterring this person from doing more work because they were having that work confiscated. They were having that labor confiscated at a higher rate because it was a bonus. Yeah, no, you know, which is absolutely ridiculous. So I would move us towards either a fair flat or fair or flat tax. The reason I allow for the flat tax is because. This is a huge argument, and the bottom line is if we had a flat tax, say everyone paid 10% of their income, period, end of story, anytime the government came along and tried to take another penny, the whole country would be up in arms. Yeah, absolutely. So it would act as a police police barrier to uh, them raising our taxes yeah. you know, indiscriminately. But I prefer a consumption tax first. Yeah. But I would just say, let's let America decide. Which of these two ways of taxation would you prefer? Absolutely. Hold on, I'm going to have to edit this out. No worries. 
So, okay. So, no, and I, I believe in the blunt force instrument of the repeal in the 16th Amendment. Yeah. I think we got to do it. Yeah. You have to, that's the only way we can hold government accountable. Right. I mean, even you got to do both, by the way. Yeah. So, anyway. Uh, okay. So, what's the next on your list? Number five was, uh, or yeah, establish a ba- bottom line basic healthcare system to provide for basic emergency healthcare for those who can't provide it for themselves. I, listen, in my opinion, we got to get rid of all federal government healthcare plans. Yeah. Now, we might consider doing the DOD plan because that's actually like doing it in a business. Right. We may possibly keep the VA, but I just don't see. I would redesign the VA. The, yeah. the, the, the military. Just make it wide open. Yeah. I mean, just make it like any insurance plan rather than. Right. A, it, H- military should not be. Not an HMO, but a, P- a PPP. Yeah. yeah. Military should be able to go to the nearest doctor that best suits their needs. Yeah. And the government should deal with it and, and just have to suck it up. Because, but this is tough for people. I yeah. get rid of uh, Medicaid, Medicare. Yeah, I would, see, and, I would, I would and, scrap and those shoot programs. Medicaid to the states. Yeah, I would, I would scrap those programs and I would create a basic bottom line that you can be eligible for if you can't acquire it yourself through a number of circumstances. It would be a high quality. It would be a high bar. Yeah, you would have to be indigent. You would have to be, um, you know, there had to be some mitigating challenge that you couldn't go out and work and and do all of this. And that's part of a broader healthcare plan that, that I've put out, put out multiple times and mentioned to a lot of different politicians that would include, you know, dollar for dollar tax breaks for corporations and individuals for every dollar they spend on healthcare. Yep. Meaning if a, if a company takes part of whatever profit they make and they put it into healthcare for their employees, that's tax free. No, absolutely. You know, so that's, that's no, kind free, of my free market healthcare. We yeah, got to get there. hundred percent. And number six, we covered, we talked about secure yep, borders secure and what borders. to do. So I think we're good there. So number seven, I would abolish the federal department of education, turn all of education over to the, to the States. And I would basically take, and I'd phase it out over time, but whatever money is currently going into the federal department of education, I would put to the States in the form of block grants on the condition that they offer school choice. Yeah that parents be able to, that your tax dollars be able to follow you wherever you want to put your kid in school. That's right. I mean, I mean, this would be such a no brainer, by the way, Trump's making inroads into the black vote. This is another way he's making it because there's, I remember when I was working in Indiana in politics, there was a, uh, a legislator there, Bill Crawford, he's since passed away, but he was like a socialist. Okay. Right. But he was radical on school choice. Right. And, and that cuts every political barrier yeah. Through, particularly in the inner cities. By the way, I, I maintain the last bastion of pure Jim Crow racism is inner city public schools. 100%. Yeah. It, and if you talk to the parents in those areas, they want to get their kids out of that situation because everybody knows education is the solution to the cycle of poverty. Yeah. And those parents need to have a choice of putting their kids wherever and their tax dollars need to follow that child. So if they want to put them in a private school or a charter school or whatever that does better for that child, their tax dollars should follow them to it. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. 100%. Absolutely. Uh, by the way, homeschoolers get worried about it because yeah. if that money gets given to them, is given to them, they are, they concern themselves yeah. with the government regulation that might come upon them. That is a key factor, but I think it can be mitigated, but I totally yeah. get that concern. And number, number yeah. eight is, is the opportunity zones that, um, uh, yeah. that Senator Scott, Tim Scott and Senator Rand Paul have put in place. Um, this is not, in some ways it could be criticized as not being free market in a way because it's giving tax breaks to certain geographical areas that that are not given to others. But then we go back to that recognition. We're less than a lifetime away from people in our communities who weren't able to eat at the same restaurants that we ate at. There's there's, we're less than 40 years away from redlining. Yeah. That was literally keeping African-Americans from being able to buy houses in certain communities. And that 
is still that that the poverty that was brought upon the lack of wealth that was brought upon as from those institutionally racist ideas of the 1960s and 70s yeah. still exist so the way you deal with that is injecting free market into those areas and say to businesses if you want to start a business in this area provide jobs provide access to healthier foods or whatever provide access to products for these communities, we're going to give it to, we're going to give you a tax break. This, this That's like an the, opportunity. It's zone. like the civil rights act of 1964, by the way, right. which should never have had to have passed, but had to pass. Right. Now it's been bastardized since in, in ways that have gone way overboard, but we were trying to correct a wrong. At least this is my personal opinion. And we do have to fix these inner cities. Yeah. The Democrat, that are running these cities will never do it. We can see it's getting worse. I heard now. somebody say the other day, they were like, we can spend trillions of dollars building schools, bridges, and infrastructure in third world countries that we've injected our military into, but we can't fix our inner cities. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, absolutely. Now your ninth one, I ninth think one. is the key. This is the key. This is the key to the whole yeah, thing. Ban man buns and dudes wearing skinny jeans. Yeah. I totally I'm done agree with, with it. you. Yeah. Man buns was the worst thing that ever came along and I'm 100% done with it. So no, I, I'm banning I mean, them. You're going to be arrested, thrown in jail. Right. Um, Period. No question. No trial. Going to jail if you wear a man bun. Uh, what was the uh, Tom Cruise <laughs> movie uh, when he got connected with uh, the samurai? Um, oh, uh, yeah, the name of it. Anyway, totally, so the guy had the, totally lack, had, the bun, had the man bun <laughs> yeah. cut off. No, those man buns I'll support because that comes with something much different. Yeah. But yeah, you know, man buns. And my slogan is uh, something that Sasquatch used to say on my radio show, poncho up, son, we're done here. So <laughs> if I get all these things done, I, I'm going to spend the rest of my time in the Oval Office. So we're going to promote Yahtzee this hashtag, Conway Sasquatch 2020. <laughs> all right, it works for me. No, no, listen, you know what the real problem with man buns is? What's that? The reason for people to get man buns. Right. <laughs> <laughs> this is a cultural phenomenon that comes up through something pretty trashy <laughs> in society, if you ask me. I don't know what motivates someone to do that. Yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of people that do it and a lot of girls that I guess think it's good, but uh, no, no man buns in Leland Conway's America. So I did all these just to make the point that, yeah. again, politics is nuanced. Yeah. There's a lot of things in here that probably don't fit in with the standard Republican platform. Yeah. They definitely don't fit in with what the Democrats give lip service to, but I think it's the way a lot of Americans think. So the, the, the you talked earlier as we get towards the closing here, you talked about uh, what Trump's going to do is a new way to connect with people. Uh, as Because I think a lot of what you've laid out is, is the kind of nuance to it that people hadn't thought through before is similar to the way that Trump kind of came in and totally radically transformed the way that we're thinking about how to approach the electorate. Right. So what do you see? So you, you said Trump has set this up. What are we looking at in the future? What are you thinking about there? Well, I, I see an opening here. Um, Trump did it, but he did it not quite right. You know, like all pioneers, I guess. Um, mm. He still has this part of what made him so relatable was <laughs> the fact that celebrity is so important to him. And I think that's part of why he has almost no ability to admit when he's wrong and almost no ability to change direction sometimes. And uh, I would say that there's an opportunity here for somebody to recognize what Trump has done really well. And that is to again, speak like normal people speak and connect with them on sort of this almost pragmatic. It's a pragmatism uh, in the approach. Cause here's the thing as a libertarian, I know I'm not going to get everything that I want and I'm not going to win every argument. What I am willing to do is get some of what I want by sitting down and talking to the other side. Mm -hmm. um, that's probably one thing that's missing in Trump is that I think early on he tried to sit down with the other side and make deals and yeah. they sort of refused. And now he's sort of gone 
way to the other side of that. Right. I think maybe the next person that comes in that can connect with the electorate that way, maybe they're going to be a little more pragmatic and say, let's, let's get a conversation going here. There's things we can remember back when Tip O'Neill was speaker of the house and president Reagan was the, was, they had beers together. They had beers yeah. together and they got deals done. And they told done. stories. Yeah. They, they shared their, they had a common yes. background in a way. Right. And they shared stories and they hated one another politically in many right. ways, but they knew that there was something important. And they got deals done. done because going back to bring this full circle to yeah. our conversation at the beginning, yeah. when I said part mm-hmm. of getting along is finding that thing you can advocate for that you both agree on. That's what they were able to do in the 1980s and early 1990s. They could find that thing they both agreed on while they disagreed on everything else and then advance the ball on that one thing. And that's, that's what I'm hoping the next politician that connects with the electorate can do that. Yeah. If that makes sense. No, I agree. And in fact, uh, one of the concerns with getting there is, is the Democrat party, right? I mean, I I think the Republican party can be very corrupt in a lot of ways. It Mm -hmm. really concerns me. But the Democrat Party is lost right now. It's not the JFK Party. Tip O'Neill came from the JFK right. Party. Right. That were still patriots. That still believed in America. They they were getting a little radicalized to the left by the time he came around. But they still had this sense of what America was, and that's why you know uh, Reagan could trade off the military spending he needed to defend right. the country with the dealing with the the other things that Democrats wanted at right. the time. But they did it. Yeah. And it can be done. Yeah, it can. And I think. I think the bottom line is that um, we need like, like if you look at, if you look at the way the two parties are set up right now, again, it's red team, blue team. There has to be a recognition that um, most Americans simply don't think that dichotomous, you know, it's, it's, we speak it because we think we're supposed to speak it. But in reality, it's like I talk to a lot of my liberal friends. They're actually conservatives in their personal life. Oh, yeah, totally. You start talking about personal responsibility. By the way, this this problem is with the leadership in the parties. It's not with the average voter. Exactly. Yeah, by and large. Yeah. So hopefully hopefully we'll see maybe – I'm not optimistic, but I'd like to see kind of a return to dialogue. That's that's the biggest thing that disappoints me is that it feels like nobody can talk anymore. Yeah. um, Without getting angry with each other. So what we just went through over the last hour or so – Yeah. Is what happens when you get two radio guys together. Yeah, right? <laughs> Long-winded? Uh, yeah. Either exactly. that or two Baptist preachers. <laughs> it's going to be an hour or little, so. A little bit of both, I guess. <laughs> exactly. Well, so uh, t- uh, let me know before we uh, finish. Phone's ringing. <laughs> before we finish this. Oh, by the way, and so we're doing this for those who are just catching the podcast. In my, in me and my wife's store in Woodland Park, Colorado, Fit Nutrition Depot. So a little bit, but that makes it fun. Yep. I mean, we've got Absolutely. a nice environment here. And, and But um, so tell people what they need to know. I, hopefully we can trade podcasts here, by the yeah, way. I'd love absolutely. to be on yours as well. We're going to have you on. Oh, that'd be great. So tell people about yours yep. and what they need to know to get a hold of you. And so it's thedisruptionzone.com. Yeah. www.thedisruptionzone.com. We're on the, I, with the, the in it. Yeah, it's the, the disruption zone. Yeah, yeah, the disruption zone. Um, we're on iHeartRadio. We're on um, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and um, I think we're on SoundCloud and um, there's one other one. But anyway, anywhere podcasts are found. I'm basically. not paying for the SoundCloud thing. Yeah, yet. right. I'm, I might want to. I, I think you need to. But... I got, I've got it because of the RSS feed. But yeah, anyway, yeah. You, you can throw that up there. You can go to the, the disruptionzone.com. And of course, we're on Twitter. It's at Leland Show and on uh, Instagram at Great Lelando. So, Great. Yep. Awesome. Well, I'm, I'm going to tell you, Leland, you're a great friend. It's you been too. A blast having you on the podcast. Yeah, been, We've been, been meaning awesome. to do this for a little while. It just yeah. hadn't worked out. But uh, thanks for coming on the yep. Against Nice podcast. And I can't wait to get you on mine. So. All right. Cool. Awesome. Thank thanks, you. Thanks, man. Okay, good. 
Thank you for joining us today on the Against Nice podcast. Please be sure to go to our website, www.politicsisntnice.com. You can sign up for our email list there just at the top right of the webpage. And make sure to follow us on iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher or even the iHeartRadio app. And give us a five-star rating and let people know what you think about our podcast. Again, www com. Join our email list at the top right hand of the page there and follow us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or iHeartRadio. Thanks for joining the show today. We'll be back soon.